Section twenty three of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section twenty three. By this love, Swann had been so far detached from all other interests, that when by chance he reappeared in the world of fashion, reminding himself that his social relations, like a beautifully wrought setting, although she would not have been able to form any exact estimate of its worth, might, still, add a little to his own value in Odette's eyes, as indeed they might have done had they not been cheapened by his love itself, which for Odette depreciated everything that it touched by seeming to denounce such things as less precious than itself. He would feel there, simultaneously with his distress at being in places and among people that she did not know, the same detached sense of pleasure as he would have derived from a novel or a painting, in which were depicted the amusements of a leisured class, just as, at home, he used to enjoy the thought of the smooth efficiency of his household, the smartness of his own wardrobe, and of his servants' liveries, the soundness of his investments, with the same relish as when he read in Saint-Simon, who was one of his favourite authors, of the machinery of daily life at Versailles, what Madame de Maintenon ate and drank, or the shrewd avarice and great pomp of Lully, and in the small extent to which this detachment was not absolute, the reason for this small pleasure which Swann was tasting was that he could emigrate for a moment into those few and distant parts of himself which had remained almost foreign to his love and to his pain. In this respect, the personality with which my great-aunt endowed him of young Swan, as distinct from the more individual personality of Charles Swan, was that in which he most now delighted. Once, when because it was the birthday of the Princesse de Parme, and because she could often be of use indirectly to Odette, by letting her have seats for galas and jubilees and all that sort of thing, he had decided to send her a basket of fruit, and was not quite sure where or how to order it. He had entrusted the task to a cousin of his mother, who, delighted to be doing a commission for him, had written to him, laying stress on the fact that she had not chosen all the fruit at the same place, but the grapes from Crapote, whose specialty they were, the strawberries from Charest, the pears from Chevet, who always had the best, and so every fruit visited and examined one by one by myself and in the sequel by the cordiality with which the princess thanked him 
he had been able to judge of the flavor of the strawberries and the ripeness of the pears but most of all that every fruit visited and examined one by one by myself had brought balm to his sufferings by carrying his mind off to a region which he rarely visited although it was his by right as the heir of a rich and respectable middle-class family in which had been handed down from generation to generation the knowledge of the right places and the art of ordering things from shops of a truth he had too long forgotten that he was young swan not to feel when he assumed that part again for a moment a keener pleasure than he was capable of feeling at other times when indeed he was grown sick of pleasure and if the friendliness of the middle-class people for whom he had never been anything else than young swan was less animated than that of the aristocrats though more flattering for all that since in the middle-class mind friendship is inseparable from respect no letter from a royal personage offering him some princely entertainment could ever be so attractive to swann as the letter which asked him to be a witness or merely to be present at a wedding in the family of some old friends of his parents some of whom had kept up with him like my grandfather who the year before these events had invited him to my mother's wedding while others barely knew him by sight but were they thought in duty bound to show civility to the son to the worthy successor of the late monsieur swann but by virtue of his intimacy already time-honoured with so many of them the people of fashion in a certain sense were also a part of his house his service and his family he felt when his mind dwelt upon his brilliant connections the same external support the same solid comfort as when he looked at the fine estate the fine silver the fine table linen which had come down to him from his forebears and the thought that if he were seized by a sudden illness and confined to the house the people whom his valet would instinctively run to find would be the duc de chartres the prince de ruse the duc de luxembourg and the baron de charlus brought him the same consolation as our old Françoise derived from the knowledge that she would one day be buried in her own fine clothes marked with her name not darned at all or so exquisitely darned that it merely enhanced one's idea of the skill and patience of the seamstress a shroud from the constant image of which in her mind's eye she drew a certain satisfactory sense if not of wealth and prosperity at any rate of self-esteem but most of all since in every one of his actions and thoughts which had reference to odette swann was constantly subdued and swayed by the unconfessed feeling that he was perhaps not less dear but at least less welcome to her than any one 
even the most wearisome of the Verdurin faithful, when he betook himself to a world in which he was the paramount example of taste, a man whom no pains were spared to attract, whom people were genuinely sorry not to see. He began once again to believe in the existence of a happier life, almost to feel an appetite for it, as an invalid may feel who has been in bed for months and on a strict diet, when he picks up a newspaper and reads the account of an official banquet or the advertisement of a cruise round Sicily. If he was obliged to make excuses to his fashionable friends for not paying them visits, it was precisely for the visits that he did pay her that he sought to excuse himself to Odette. He still paid them, asking himself at the end of each month whether, seeing that he had perhaps exhausted her patience, and had certainly gone rather often to see her, it would be enough if he sent her four thousand francs, and for each visit he found a pretext, a present that he had to bring her, some information which she required, Monsieur de Charlus, whom he had met actually going to her house, and who insisted upon Swann's accompanying him, and failing any excuse, he would beg Monsieur de Charlus to go to her at once, and to tell her, as though spontaneously, in the course of conversation, that he had just remembered something he had to say to Swann, and would she please send a message to Swann's house, asking him to come to her then and there. But, as a rule, Swann waited at home in vain, and Monsieur de Charlus informed him, later in the evening, that his device had not proved successful, with the result that, if she was now frequently away from Paris, even when she was there he scarcely saw her, that she who, when she was in love with him, used to say, I am always free, and what can it matter to me what other people think? Now, whenever he wanted to see her, appealed to the proprieties, or pleaded some engagement, when he spoke of going to a charity entertainment, or a private view, or a first night at which she was to be present, she would expostulate that he wished to advertise their relations in public, that he was treating her like a woman off the streets. Things came to such a pitch that, in an effort to save himself from being altogether forbidden to meet her anywhere, Swann remembering that she knew, and was deeply attached to my great-uncle, Adolphe, whose friend he himself also had been, went one day to see him in his little flat in the Rue de Bellechaise, to ask him to use his influence with Odette. As it happened, she invariably adopted, when she spoke to Swann about my uncle, a poetical tone, saying, Ah, he, he is not in the least like you. It is an exquisite thing, a great, a beautiful thing, his friendship for me. He's not the sort of man who would have so little consideration for me as to let himself be seen with me everywhere in public. 
this was embarrassing for Swann, who did not know quite to what rhetorical pitch he could screw himself up in speaking of Odette to my uncle. He began by alluding to her excellent a priori, the axiom of her seraphic superhumanity, the revelation of her inexpressible virtues, no conception of which could possibly be formed. I should like to speak to you about her, he went on, you who know what a woman supreme above all women, what an adorable being, what an angel Odette is. But you know also what life is in Paris. Everyone doesn't see Odette in the light in which you and I have been privileged to see her. And so there are people who think that I am behaving rather foolishly. She won't even allow me to meet her out of doors at the theatre. Now you, in whom she has such enormous confidence, couldn't you say a few words for me to her, just to assure her that she exaggerate the harm which my bowing to her in the street might do her? My uncle advised Swann not to see Odette for some days, after which she would love him all the more. He advised Odette to let Swann meet her, everywhere and as often as he pleased. A few days later Odette told Swann that she had just had a rude awakening. She had discovered that my uncle was the same as other men. He had tried to take her by assault. She calmed Swann, who at first was for rushing out to challenge my uncle to a duel, but he refused to shake hands with him when they met again. He regretted this rupture all the more, because he had hoped, if he had met my uncle Adolphe again sometimes, and had contrived to talk things over with him in strict confidence, to be able to get him to throw a light on certain rumours with regard to the life that Odette had led, in the old days, at Nice. For my uncle Adolphe used to spend the winter there, and Swann thought it might indeed have been there, perhaps, that he had first known Odette. The few words which someone had let fall in his hearing, about a man who, it appeared, had been Odette's lover, had left Swann dumbfoundered. But the very things which he would, before knowing them, have regarded as the most terrible to learn, and the most impossible to believe, were, once he knew them, incorporated for all time in the general mass of his sorrow. He admitted them. He could no longer have understood their not existing. Only each one of them, in its passage, traced an indelible line, altering the picture that he had formed of his mistress. At one time, indeed, he felt that he could understand that this moral lightness, of which he would never have suspected Odette, was perfectly well known, and that at Baden or Nice, when she had gone, in the past, to spend several months in one or the other place, she had enjoyed a sort of amorous notoriety. He attempted, in order to question them, to get into touch again with certain men of that stamp. But these were aware that he knew Odette, 
and, besides, he was afraid of putting the thought of her into their heads, of setting them once more upon her track. But he, to whom, up till then, nothing could have seemed so tedious as was all that pertained to the cosmopolitan life of Baden or of Nice, now that he learned that Odette had, perhaps, led a gay life once in those pleasure cities, although he could never find out whether it had been solely to satisfy a want of money, which, thanks to himself, she no longer felt, or from some capricious instinct, which might, at any moment, revive in her, he would lean, in impotent anguish, blinded and dizzy, over the bottomless abyss into which had passed, in which had been engulfed those years of his own, early in McMahon's Septonaut, in which one spent the winter on the Promenade des Anglais, the summer beneath the limes of Baden, and would find in those years a sad but splendid profundity, such as a poet might have lent to them and he would have devoted to the reconstruction of all the insignificant details that made up the daily round on the Côte d'Azur in those days, if it could have helped him to understand something that still baffled him in the smile or the eyes of Odette, more enthusiasm than does the aesthete who ransacks the extant documents of fifteenth-century Florence, so as to try to penetrate further into the soul of the primavera, the fair vana, or the Venus of Botticelli. He would sit often, without saying a word to her, only gazing at her and dreaming, and she would comment, You look so sad. It was not very long since, from the idea that she was an excellent creature, comparable to the best women that he had known, he had passed to that of her being kept, and yet already by the inverse process he had returned from the Odette de Crecy, perhaps too well known to the holiday-makers, to the ladies' men of Nice and Baden, to this face, the expression on which was so often gentle, to this nature so eminently human. He would ask himself, what does it mean, after all, to say that everyone at Nice knows who Odette de Crecy is? Reputations of that sort, even when they're true, are always based upon other people's ideas. He would reflect that this legend, even if it were authentic, was something external to Odette, was not inherent in her like a mischievous and eradicable personality, that the creature who might have been led astray was a woman with frank eyes, a heart full of pity for the sufferings of others, a docile body which he had pressed tightly in his arms and explored with his fingers, a woman of whom he might one day come into absolute possession if he succeeded in making himself indispensable to her. There she was, often tired, her face left blank for the nonce by that eager 
feverish preoccupation with the unknown things which made Swann suffer. She would push back her hair with both hands. Her forehead, her whole face, would seem to grow larger. Then, suddenly, some ordinary human thought, some worthy sentiment, such as is to be found in all creatures, when, in a moment of rest or meditation, they are free to express themselves, would flash out from her eyes like a ray of gold, and immediately the whole of her face would light up like a grey landscape, swathed in clouds which suddenly are swept away, and the dull scene transfigured at the moment of the sun setting. The life which occupied Odette at such times, even the future which she seemed to be dreamily regarding, Swann could have shared with her. No evil disturbance seemed to have left any effect on them. Rare as they became, those moments did not occur in vain. By the process of memory, Swann joined the fragments together, abolished the intervals between them, cast as in molten gold the image of an Odette compact of kindness and tranquillity, for whom he was to make, later on, as we shall see in the second part of this story, sacrifices which the other Odette would never have won from him. But how rare those moments were, and how seldom he now saw her. Even in regard to their evening meetings, she would never tell him until the last minute whether she would be able to see him, for, reckoning on his being always free, she wished first to be certain that no one else would offer to come to her. She would plead that she was obliged to wait for an answer which was of the very greatest importance, and if, even after she had made Swann come to her house, any of her friends asked her, halfway through the evening, to join them at some theatre or at supper afterwards, she would jump for joy and dress herself up with all speed. As her toilette progressed, every movement that she made brought Swann nearer to the moment when he would have to part from her, when she would fly off with irresistible force. And when at length she was ready, and, plunging into her mirror a last glance, strained and brightened by her anxiety to look well, smeared a little salve on her lips, fixed a stray loci of hair over her brow, and called for the cloak of sky-blue silk with golden tassels, Swann would be looking so wretched that she would be unable to restrain a gesture of impatience as she flung at him. So that is how you thank me for keeping you here till the last minute, and I thought I was being so nice to you. Well, I shall know better another time. Sometimes, at the risk of annoying her, he made up his mind that he would find out where she had gone, and even dreamed of a defensive alliance with Forcheville, who might perhaps been able to tell him. But, anyhow, when he knew with whom she was spending the evening, 
it was very seldom that he could not discover, among all his innumerable acquaintance, some one who knew, if only indirectly, the man with whom she had gone out, and could easily obtain this or that piece of information about him. And while he was writing to one of his friends, asking him to try to get a little light thrown upon some point or other, he would feel a sense of relief on ceasing to vex himself with questions to which there was no answer, and transferring to someone else the strain of interrogation. It is true that Swann was little the wiser for such information as he did receive. To know a thing does not enable us always to prevent its happening, but after all, the things that we know we do hold, if not in our hands, at any rate in our minds, where we can dispose of them as we choose, which gives us the illusion of a sort of power to control them. He was quite happy whenever Monsieur de Charlus was with Odette. He knew that between Monsieur de Charlus and her nothing untoward could ever happen, that when Monsieur de Charlus went anywhere with her, it was out of friendship for himself, and that he would make no difficulty about telling him everything that she had done. Sometimes she had declared so emphatically to Swann that it was impossible for him to see her a particular evening, she seemed to be looking forward so keenly to some outing, that Swann attached a very real importance to the fact that Monsieur de Charlus was free to accompany her. Next day, without daring to put many questions to Monsieur de Charlus, he would force him, by appearing not quite to understand his first answers, to give him more, after each of which he would feel himself increasingly relieved. For he very soon learned that Odette had spent her evening in the most innocent of dissipations. But what do you mean, my dear Meme? I don't quite understand. You didn't go straight from her house to the Musée Grévin? Surely you went somewhere else first. No, that is very odd. You don't know how amusing you are, my dear Meme. But what an odd idea of hers to go to the Chat Noir afterwards. It was her idea, I suppose. No? Yours? That's strange. After all, it wasn't a bad idea. She must have known dozens of people there. No, she never spoke to a soul. How extraordinary. Then you sat there like that, just you and she, all by yourselves. I can picture you sitting there. You are a worthy fellow, my dear Meme. I'm exceedingly fond of you. Swann was now quite at ease. To him, who had so often happened, when talking to friends who knew nothing about his love, friends to whom he hardly listened, to hear certain detached sentences, as, for instance, I saw Madame de Crecy yesterday. She was with a man I didn't know. Sentences which dropped into his heart and passed at once into a solid state, grew hard as stalagmites, and seared and tore him as they lay there irremovable. How charming, by way of contrast, were the words, 
she didn't know a soul. She never spoke to a soul. How freely they coursed through him, how fluid they were, how vaporous, how easy to breathe. And yet, a moment later, he was telling himself that Odette must find him very dull if those were the pleasures that she preferred to his company. And their very insignificance, though it reassured him, pained him as if her enjoyment of them had been an act of treachery. Even when he could not discover where she had gone, it would have sufficed to alleviate the anguish that he then felt, for which Odette's presence, the charm of her company, was the sole specific, a specific which, in the long run, served, like many other remedies, to aggravate the disease, but at least brought temporary relief to his sufferings. It would have sufficed had Odette only permitted him to remain in her house while she was out, to wait there until that hour of her return, into whose stillness and peace would flow, to be mingled and lost there, all memory of those intervening hours which some sorcery, some cursed spell had made him imagine as somehow different from the rest. But she would not. He must return home. He forced himself, on the way, to form various plans, cease to think of Odette. He even reached the stage, while he undressed, of turning over all sorts of happy ideas in his mind. It was with a light heart, buoyed with the anticipation of going to see some favourite work of art on the morrow, that he jumped into bed and turned out the light but no sooner had he made himself ready to sleep, relaxing a self-control of which he was not even conscious, so habitual had it become, that an icy shudder convulsed his body, and he burst into sobs. He did not wish to know why, but dried his eyes, saying, with a smile, This is delightful. I'm becoming neurasthenic after which he could not save himself from utter exhaustion at the thought that next day he must begin afresh his attempt to find out what Odette had been doing, must use all his influence to contrive to see her. This compulsion to an activity without respite, without variety, without result, was so cruel a scourge that one day, Noticing a swelling over his stomach, he felt an actual joy in the idea that he had, perhaps, a tumour which would prove fatal, that he need not concern himself with anything further, that it was his malady which was going to govern his life, to make a plaything of him, until the not-distant end. If, indeed, at this period, it often happened that, though without admitting it even to himself, he longed for death. It was in order to escape not so much from the keenness of his sufferings as from the monotony of his struggle. And yet he would have wished to live until the time came when he no longer loved her, when she would have no reason for lying to him, when, at length, he might learn from her whether, on the day when he had gone to see her in the afternoon, she had or had not been 
in the arms of Fourcheville. Often, for several days on end, the suspicion that she was in love with someone else would distract his mind from the question of Fourcheville, making it almost immaterial to him, like those new developments of a continuous state of ill health, which seemed for a little time to have delivered us from their predecessors. There were even days when he was not tormented by any suspicion. He fancied that he was cured, but next morning when he awoke, he felt in the same place the same pain, a sensation which the day before he had, as it were, diluted in the torrent of different impressions, but it had not stirred from its place. Indeed, it was the sharpness of this pain that had awakened him. Since Odette never gave him any information as to those vastly important matters which took up so much of her time every day, albeit he had lived long enough in the world to know that such matters are never anything else than pleasures, he could not sustain for any length of time the effort to imagine them. His brain would become a void. Then he would pass a finger over his tired eyelids, in the same way as he might have wiped his eyeglass, and would cease altogether to think. There emerged, however, from this unexplored tract, certain occupations which reappeared from time to time, vaguely connected by Odette with some obligation towards distant relatives or old friends, who, inasmuch as they were the only people whom she was in the habit of mentioning, as preventing her from seeing him, seemed, to Swann, to compose the necessary, unalterable setting of her life. Because of the tone in which she referred from time to time to the day when I go with my friend to the Hippodrome, if, when he felt unwell and had thought, perhaps Odette will be kind and come to see me, he remembered suddenly that it was one of those very days he would correct himself with an, oh no, it's not worth while asking her to come. I should have thought of it before. This is the day when she goes with her friend to the Hippodrome. We must confine ourselves to what is possible. No use wasting our time in proposing things that can't be accepted and are declined in advance and this duty that was incumbent upon Odette of going to the Hippodrome, to which Swann thus gave way, seemed to him to be not merely ineluctable in itself, but the mark of necessity which stamped it seemed to make plausible and legitimate everything that was even remotely connected with it. If, when Odette in the street had acknowledged the salute of a passer-by, which had aroused Swann's jealousy, she replied to his questions by associating the stranger with any of the two or three paramount duties of which she had often spoken to him. If, for instance, she said, That's a gentleman who was in my friend's box the other day, the one I go to the Hippodrome with. That explanation would set Swann's suspicions at rest, it was, after all, inevitable that this friend should have other guests than Odette in her box at the Hippodrome. 
but he had never sought to form or succeeded in forming any coherent impression of them. Oh, how he would have loved to know her, that friend who went to the Hippodrome, how he would have loved her to invite him there with Odette. How readily he would have sacrificed all his acquaintance, for no matter what person who was in the habit of seeing Odette, were she but a manicurist or a girl from a shop, he would have taken more trouble, incurred more expense for them than for queens. Would they not have supplied him, out of what was contained in their knowledge of the life of Odette, with the one potent anodyne for his pain? With what joy would he have hastened to spend his days with one or other of these humble folk, with whom Odette kept up friendly relations, either with some ulterior motive, or from genuine simplicity of nature. How willingly would he have fixed his abode for ever in the attics of some sordid but enviable house, where Odette went but never took him, and where, if he had lived with the little retired dressmaker, whose lover he would readily have pretended to be, he would have been visited by Odette almost daily. In those regions that were almost slums, what a modest existence, abject, if you please, but delightful, nourished by tranquillity and happiness, he would have consented to lead indefinitely. It sometimes happened, again, that when, after meeting Swann, she saw some man approaching whom he did not know, he could distinguish upon Odette's face that look of sorrow which she had worn on the day when he had come to her while Fourcheville was there. But this was rare, for on the days when, in spite of all that she had to do, and of her dread of what people would think, she did actually manage to see Swann, the predominant quality in her attitude now was self-assurance, a striking contrast perhaps an unconscious revenge for, perhaps a natural reaction from the timorous emotion which, in the early days of their friendship, she had felt in his presence, and even in his absence, when she began a letter to him with the words, My dear, my hand trembles so that I can scarcely write. So at least, she pretended, and a little of that emotion must have been sincere, or she would not have been anxious to enlarge and emphasize it. So Swann had been pleasing to her then. Our hands do not tremble except for ourselves, or for those whom we love. When they have ceased to control our happiness, how peaceful, how easy, how bold do we become in their presence. In speaking to him, in writing to him now, she no longer employed those words by which she had sought to give herself the illusion that he belonged to her, creating opportunities for saying my and mine when she referred to him. You are all that I have in the world. It is the perfume of our friendship. I shall keep it. Nor spoke to him of the future of death itself, as of a single adventure which they would have to share. 
In those early days, whatever he might say to her, she would answer admiringly, You know, you will never be like other people. She would gaze at his long, slightly bald head, of which people who know only of his success used to think, He's not regularly good-looking, if you like, but he is smart. That tuft, that eyeglass, that smile, and with more curiosity perhaps to know him as he really was than desire to become his mistress, she would sigh, I do wish I could find out what there is in that head of yours. But now, whatever he might say, she would answer in a tone sometimes of irritation, sometimes indulgent, Ah, so you never will be like other people. She would gaze at his head, which was hardly aged at all by his recent anxieties, though people now thought of it by the same mental process which enables one to discover the meaning of a piece of symphonic music of which one has read the program, or the likenesses in a child whose family one has known. He's not positively ugly, if you like, but he is really rather absurd. That eyeglass, that tuft, that smile, realizing in their imagination, fed by suggestion, the invisible boundary which divides, at a few months' interval, the head of an ardent lover from a cuckold's, and would say, Oh, I do wish I could change you, put some sense into that head of yours. Always ready to believe in the truth of what he hoped, if it was only Odette's way of behaving to him that left room for doubt, he would fling himself greedily upon her words, You can, if you like, he would tell her and he tried to explain to her that to comfort him, to control him, to make him work would be a noble task, to which numbers of other women asked for nothing better than to be allowed to devote themselves, though it is only fair to add that, in those other women's hands, the noble task would have seemed to Swan nothing more than an indiscreet and intolerable usurpation of his freedom of action. If she didn't love me just a little, he told himself, she would not wish to have me altered. To alter me, she would have to see me more often. And so he was able to trace in these faults which she found in him a proof, at least, of her interest, perhaps even of her love. And, in fact, she gave him so little now of the last that he was obliged to regard as proofs of her interest in him the various things which, every now and then, she forbade him to do. One day she announced that she did not care for his coachman, who, she thought, was perhaps setting Swann against her, and anyhow did not show that promptness and deference to Swann's orders which she would have liked to see. She felt that he wanted to hear her say, Don't have him again when you come to me, just as he might have wanted her to kiss him. So being in a good temper, she said it, and he was deeply moved. 
That evening, when talking to Monsieur de Charlus, with whom he had the satisfaction of being able to speak of her openly, for the most trivial remarks that he uttered now, even to people who had never heard of her, had always some sort of reference to Odette, he said to him, I believe all the same that she loves me. She is so nice to see me now, and she certainly takes an interest in what I do. And if when he was starting off for her house, getting into his carriage with a friend, whom he was to drop somewhere on the way, his friend said, Hello, that isn't Loradan on the box. With what melancholy joy would Swan answer him, Oh, good heavens, no, I, I can tell you, I daren't take Loradan when I go to the Rue La Perouse. Odette doesn't like me to have Loradan. She thinks he doesn't suit me. What on earth is one to do? Women, you know, women. My dear fellow, she would be furious. Oh, Lord, yes, I've only to take Remy there. I should never hear the last of it. These new manners, indifferent listless, irritable, which Odette now adopted with Swann, undoubtedly made him suffer. But he did not realize how much he suffered, since it had been with a regular progression, day after day, that Odette had chilled towards him. It was only by directly contrasting what she was to-day with what she had been at first that he could have measured the extent of the change that had taken place. Now this change was his deep, his secret wound, which pained him day and night, and whenever he felt that his thoughts were straying too near it, he would quickly turn them into another channel for fear of being made to suffer too keenly. He might say to himself in a vague way, there was a time when Odette loved me more, but he never formed any definite picture of that time, just as he had in his study a cupboard at which he contrived never to look, which he turned aside to avoid passing whenever he entered or left the room, because in one of its drawers he had locked away the chrysanthemum which she had given him on one of those first evenings when he had taken her home in his carriage, and the letters in which she said, Why did you not forget your heart also? I should never have let you have that back. And at whatever hour of the day or night you may need me, just send me a word, and dispose of me as you please. So there was a place in his heart to which he would never allow his thoughts to trespass too near, forcing them, if need be, to evade it by a long course of reasoning, so that they should not have to pass within reach of it, the place in which lingered his memories of happy days. But his so meticulous prudence was defeated one evening when he had gone out to a party. It was at the Marquise de Saint-Huvert, on the last, for that season, of the evenings on which she invited people to listen to the musicians who would serve later on for her charity concerts. 
Swann, who had intended to go to each of the previous evenings in turn, but had never been able to make up his mind, received, while he was dressing for his party, a visit from the Baron de Charlus, who came with an offer to go with him to the Marquise's, if his company could be of any use in helping Swann not to feel so bored when he got there, to be a little less unhappy. But Swann had thanked him with, You can't conceive how glad I should be of your company, but the greatest pleasure that you can give me will be if you will go instead to see Odette. You know what a splendid influence you have over her. I don't suppose she'll be going anywhere this evening unless she goes to her old dressmaker, and I'm sure she would be delighted if you went with her there. In any case, you'll find her at home before then. Try to keep her amused, and also to give her a little sound advice. If you could arrange something for tomorrow which would please her, something that we could all three do together, try to put out a feeler, too, for the summer, see if there's anything she wants to do, a cruise that we might all three take anything you can think of. I don't count upon seeing her to-night, myself. Still, if she would like me to come, or if you find a loophole, you've only to send me a line at Madame de Saint-Euvers up till midnight. After that I shall be here. Ever so many thanks for all you are doing for me. You know what I feel about you." His friend promised to go and do as Swann wished, as soon as he had deposited him at the door of the Saint-Ouvert house, where he arrived, soothed by the thought that Monsieur de Charlus would be spending the evening in the Rue La Perouse, but in a state of melancholy indifference to everything that did not involve Odette, and in particular to the details of fashionable life a state which invested them with the charm that is to be found in anything which, being no longer an object of our desire, appears to us in its own guise. On alighting from his carriage in the foreground of that fictitious summary of their domestic existence which hostesses are pleased to offer to their guests on ceremonial occasions, and in which they show a great regard for accuracy of costume and setting. Swann was amused to discover the heirs and predecessors of Balzac's tigers, now grooms, who normally followed their mistress when she walked abroad, but now hatted and booted, were posted out of doors in front of the house on the gravel drive, or outside the stables, as gardeners might be drawn up for inspection at the ends of their several flower-beds. The peculiar tendency which he had always had to look for analogies between living people and the portraits and galleries reasserted itself here, but in a more positive and more general form. It was society as a whole, now that he was detached from it, which presented itself to him in a series of pictures. 
in the cloak-room into which in the old days when he was still a man of fashion he would have gone in his overcoat to emerge from it in evening dress but without any impression of what had occurred there his mind having been during the minute or two that he had spent in it either still at the party which he had just left or already at the party into which he was just about to be ushered he now noticed for the first time roused by the unexpected arrival of so belated a guest the scattered pack of splendid effortless animals the enormous footmen who were drowsing here and there upon benches and chests until pointing their noble greyhound profiles they towered upon their feet and gathered in a circle round about him one of them of a particularly ferocious aspect and not unlike the headsman in certain renaissance pictures which represent executions tortures and the like advanced upon him with an implacable air to take his things but the harshness of his steely glare was compensated by the softness of his cotton gloves so effectively that as he approached swann he seemed to be exhibiting at once an utter contempt for his person and the most tender regard for his hat he took it with a care to which the precision of his movements imparted something that was almost over fastidious and with a delicacy that was rendered almost touching by the evidence of his splendid strength then he passed it to one of his satellites a novice and timid who was expressing the panic that overpowered him by casting furious glances in every direction and displayed all the dumb agitation of a wild animal in the first hours of its captivity end of section twenty three